0: Welcome back, everyone. I am pleased to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Melissa Putman. Dr. Putman is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and an adult and pediatric endocrinologist at Boston Children's Hospital and Massachusetts General Hospital, where she cares for children and adults with CF alongside their pulmonologists and other providers. Her interests include pediatric bone health, cystic fibrosis-related bone disease, the prevention of adult endocrine complications of childhood diseases and optimizing patient transitions from pediatric to adult care. She performs clinical research focused on the endocrine complications of CF, including CF-related diabetes and bone disease. Please help me welcome Dr. Putman for her presentation, CF-related bone disease, current evidence, and future directions. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much for the introduction, and thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here to talk with you about one of my favorite topics. Uh, Here are my disclosures, and what I'd like to do over the next 40 minutes is start off by talking about some of the current evidence, what we know about the prevalence pathogenesis of the bone disease that we see in children and adults with CF, And then I'd like to go on to talk about prevention and treatment of this complication, uh, including the role of CFTR modulators. And I'd like to end by highlighting some of what I see are the current gaps in our knowledge uh, of bone disease and important future research directions that I hope we're able to go to really push this field forward. So as I'm sure everyone uh, at this conference is aware, as people with CF live longer, what we're finding are that non-pulmonary complications are becoming increasingly prevalent and burdensome. This includes CF-related diabetes, and it also includes CF bone disease. Uh, And this is data from uh, the 2020 CF Foundation Patient Registry report looking at the prevalence of osteopenia, osteoporosis, or fracture by age. And what we can see is really starting in kind of the young adult, adolescent young adult years, we see an increase in the prevalence of bone disease. It kind of just steadily increases thereafter. And so as we get older, somewhere between 30 to 50% of patients will have this complication. But I think it's important to point out that this is likely an underestimate of the true prevalence of bone disease. Um, And this was a study that was just recently published um, online first in JCF, looking at screening practices. Uh, They used data from the CF Foundation Patient Registry to identify adults with CF who were screened with at least one DEXA scan, which is our typical screening tool, um, between the years of 2014 and 2018. And they found that only 60% of this sample of over 15,000 adults actually had a DEXA during this time period. And this figure, what I'm showing you on the uh, Y-axis is the percent of patients who had DEXA scans uh, during this time period. And on the X-axis, each line is a different um, CF center. And you can see that there's a median screening rate by program of only 66%. Um, And I am confident that this has gotten worse since the pandemic started. And I think this does represent an important area of improvement in our, our patient care. Now, the most important manifestation of CF bone disease is fracture. And we know that young adults with CF have an increased risk of fracture, one that's more than double that of the healthy population. And in people with CF, rib and vertebral fractures tend to be the most common. But if you think about it, these can have significant morbidity for our patients. So a rib fracture is going to be very painful. It can make it difficult to take big breaths and cough and do airway clearance, potentially predisposing to pneumonia or CF exacerbation. And by the same token, a vertebral fracture can be very painful, but can also cause progressive kyphosis, where hunched over, and that can affect chest wall expansion and pulmonary function too. And um, in addition, multiple vertebral fractures can be a contraindication to lung transplant, which for patients with advanced lung disease, that could be their only chance for life-saving treatment. So this is a very important aspect of, um, of CF. And we also know from multiple clinical studies that um, aerial bone density as measured by DEXA uh, is lower in adults with CF. And so there was a systematic review that was published not too long ago that found that almost 40% of adults with CF had T-scores between minus one and minus 2.5, so in that osteopenic range, and almost a quarter had T-scores below minus 2.5, which is in the range of osteoporosis. And in these studies, the severity of reductions in bone density tends to correlate with older age, with poor nutritional status or lower BMI, with um, a lower uh, pulmonary function, and then men tend to be more effective than women. And DEXA is our primary screening tool for bone disease in all patient populations, and it has Many advantages, including low radiation dosing. It is wildly available and easily accessed. And it does a great job of predicting fracture in postmenopausal women and older men. But I want to point out that there are limitations to this tool, particularly as it pertains to CF. So one of those is that DEXA measures aerial bone density, which is two dimensional. Um, And any kind of two-dimensional measure is influenced by bone size, such that smaller bones are gonna look less dense on that two-dimensional imaging. And and it is true that people with CF do tend to be somewhat shorter um, than the healthy population, particularly in kids growing. Um, In addition, DEXA cannot distinguish between cortical bone, which is that thick outer shell, and trabecular bone, which is the bone on the inside. And then lastly, there there have been studies that suggest that DEXA may not accurately predict fractures in people with CF in the same way as it does in uh, non-CF populations. And so now we have some very cool research tools that have given us even more information about skeletal architecture, bone strength, Um, including this one, which is called high-resolution peripheral quantitative CT, or HRPQCT. And this is a CT scanner that looks at images of the wrist and the ankle, and it uses really high resolution to basically provide a virtual bone biopsy, which is information that we probably haven't been able to get before without doing invasive testing, um, like bone biopsies. Um, And in this study, we investigated differences between young adults with CF and healthy volunteers who are age, race, and gender-matched, and um, this picture here is kind of a representative image of an HRPQCT scan of the tibia in a 23-year-old healthy woman compared to, on the right, a 23-year-old woman with CF, Um, and you can really appreciate the differences here in the cortical bone between these two pictures and also the trabecular bone here in the middle between these two pictures. And what we found in this study is that both the radius and the tibia, young adults with CF had smaller bone cross-sectional area and lower total volumetric bone density. They also had compromises in cortical and trabecular microarchitecture and volumetric bone density at both sites. But these were actually most notable at the tibia. And then interestingly, we also found that um, the the adults with CF had lower estimates of bone strength. And that was true even after we adjusted for differences in BMI and in DEXA areal bone density. So even when we take into account that they had different DEXA and lower bone density by DEXA, they still had lower estimates of bone strength. And that's telling us that DEXA may not capture the full extent of skeletal abnormalities that are present in our, in our patients with CF. And we also know that it's not just adults who are affected and that um, even children can have abnormalities in um, their bone density and architecture. And I wanted to highlight this study, which is one of the largest in children and adolescents with CF, And they looked at peripheral quantitative CT of the tibia in 97 children and adult children with CF, children and adolescents with CF ages 8 to 21. And they compared their results to 199 healthy children. And the data that you see here are their bone density Z scores on the the Y axis. And then um, the uh, controls are in the dark gray, and then the children with CF are in the light gray. And what you can see are that in females, the the kids and adolescents with CF had lower total intravecular volumetric bone density. They had lower cortical cross-sectional area, and they had lower periosteal circumference. The males had a trend toward lower trabecular volumetric density and lower cortical cross-sectional area. And both genders, as you can see here, had lower estimates of bone strength. And so what this study is telling us is that it's really likely the deficits that we see um, in the skeleton of people with CF are likely starting in in childhood. So I'd like to talk a little bit now about what we know about the pathogenesis of CF-related bone disease. Now, we, can, we know from histomorphometric studies, like this one, along with animal studies and bone turnover markers in, in humans, that CF tends to be characterized by an uncoupling of bone turnover. So in all skeletons, there is a balance between bone buildup and bone breakdown, and that's happening all the time. Bones are being built up and broken down in, in a very tightly coupled way. Um, But in CF, studies have shown that bone formation tends to be reduced and bone resorption or bone breakdown tends to be increased. And although the exact reason for this uncoupling is still unclear, I think we can all appreciate that people with CF have multiple risk factors contributing to poor bone health. So First, there's vitamin D deficiency is very prevalent in, in our patients. Um, uh, many people have pancreatic insufficiency, which can lead to malabsorption of vitamin D and calcium. and can also lead to malnutrition. People with CF may have lower physical activity levels and less weight-bearing exercise related to restrictions from their lung disease. We also see um, increased rates of delayed puberty and hypogonadism. Many people require treatment with glucocorticoids for their lung disease, and we know that's very toxic for, for the skeleton. In addition, diabetes has recently been shown to negatively affect bone health, and up to 50% of our patients are adults with CF can have CF-related diabetes. Uh, people often have chronic infections, inflammation, when you've disease, all affecting the skeleton. Um, But in addition to that, you may not have known or heard that there's emerging data suggesting that CFTR dysfunction itself may be playing a role in the bone disease that we're seeing. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. And so the the first clue to the potential role of CFTR in bone actually came from mice. So I'm I'm sure people here are aware that the lung disease in CFTR knockout mice tends to be much milder than humans, but they have much more prominent bowel disease. And so mice typically die after three weeks of age from bowel obstruction. And so these investigators looked at um, CFTR knockout mice at three weeks of age um, and interestingly found that they had severe osteopenia. You can see here, cortical bone is much thinner in the CFTR knockout mice compared to the wild type. And then they also had compromises in trabecular bone, including lower trabecular surface area, trabecular thickness, increased trabecular spacing. Um, And interestingly, these animals also showed showed evidence of reduced bone formation and increased bone resorption. And since then, similar results have gone on to be seen in CFTR knockout mice at older ages who were treated with a specialized diet to prevent intestinal obstruction. CFTR knockout mice whose CFTR deficiency in the gut was corrected, and then in mouse models with specifically the Delta F508 CFTR mutation, and then most recently in newborn CFTR deficient piglets. And it turns out that CFTR is expressed in human osteoblasts, which are the bone buildup cells, and in human osteoclasts, which are the bone breakdown cells. And this is an example of an immunolocalization study that showed CFTR expression here in an osteoblast at a bone-forming surface, and then also here in an osteoclast within a bone resorption pit. And then, interestingly, unlike in epithelial cells where CFTR is expressed in the cell membrane, in both osteoblast and an osteoclast, CFTR is primarily localized in the cytoplasm of these cells. And that just raises the question, you know, what exactly is CFTR doing in these bone cells? And we don't know for sure, um, but there are some really interesting studies that are giving us some clues. And so I wanted to show you this slide. This is a dramatically oversimplified, yet still complicated <laughs> picture of bone physiology. It's very, very complicated. Um, But I wanted to focus on this area right here, which I'm gonna make a little bigger. Um, And I wanted to point out um, this right here, this is osteoprotegerin, and OPG is a soluble receptor that's produced by osteoblasts, which are the bone buildup cells and osteocytes, which are the mature bone cells. Um, And uh, osteoprotegerin binds to and neutralizes rank ligand. And this prevents ray ligand from binding to osteoclast here, and to osteoclast precursors here, and that thereby inhibits osteoclast differentiation and activation. And this is where we think that CFTR is playing a role in bone physiology. So let me show you some of the studies. Uh, so the top bar up here, um, this is looking at CFTR knockout mice here in the black compared to wild type in the white. And as you can see, there's no difference between rank ligand in the control versus the wild type, both in basal settings and then after stimulation with parathyroid hormone. Um, but when we look at OPG levels here, you can see that actually the CFTR knockout mice had lower OPG levels under both basal and stimulated circumstances. And the ratio between the rank ligand and OPG was higher in the uh, the chair knockout mice, again under both control and um, after stimulation with parathyroid hormone. And then in this study here, human osteoblasts from patients with delta F508 Um, showed lower basal OPG protein levels um, compared to the the non-CF osteoblasts. And in this study um, that looked at human osteoblasts derived from healthy adults who were undergoing other um, bone surgeries, when the CFTR chloride channel function was inhibited in these osteoblasts, this led to a three and a half fold reduction in OPG levels, as you can see here. Um, and that was either further augmented when um, stimulated by TNF-alpha. Um, and this effect was also reversible after removal of the inhibitor. So the bulk of these data are telling us that um, UCFTR may be playing a role in how osteoblast and osteoclast talk to each other via the rake and OPG pathway, Um, but really further studies are gonna be needed to better understand exactly what CFTR is doing in bone cells. All right, I'd like to talk now a little bit about prevention and treatment of bone disease. So we have some very helpful guidelines that were published a while ago, 2005, so it's probably pretty soon to time to get new guidelines, but, but these guidelines recommend DEXA screening in all adults over the age of 18 with CF, and then all children over the age of eight who have risk factors, including low body weight, steroid use, compromised pulmonary function, delayed puberty, and a history of fractures. And then in the guidelines, there is this helpful um, figure that, re- that also indicates the intervals of screening that's recommended. So as an example, if the initial Z scores are above -1, then uh, Dexas are recommended every 5 years after that. If the bone density Z scores are between -1 and -2, then we should be repeating the Dexa in every 2 to 4 years. And then if the Z scores are low, which is less than uh, or equal to -2, then um, Dexas are recommended annually. And the probably the first and foremost, most important interventions that we do in bone health are non-pharmacologic. And this is something that I like to talk about with my patients starting in childhood, if possible, uh, because I feel like if we can start these healthy approaches to optimizing bone health early, it'll have just a really important effect moving forward, particularly as patients live longer and longer. So the first is nutrition and trying to maintain an optimal bmi because nutrition is just important for everything but particularly for bone health so making sure that children have a bmi percentile 50th percentile or above and that men have bmi of about 23 or above and women 22 in addition vitamin d supplementation is also important uh, there are some studies suggesting that d3 or cholecalciferol is actually better than D2, and so I always recommend D3 for my patients. And we aim for a 25-hydroxyvitamin D level of above 30. And I do want to point out there are CF-specific vitamin D supplementation guidelines that are available. uh, They're very helpful because a lot of our patients require a lot more vitamin D than the non-CF population. In addition, um, vitamin K supplementation uh, is helpful And the calcium intake recommendations are actually much greater in people with CF than in kind of the typical osteoporosis population. So we recommend somewhere between 13 and 1500 milligrams of calcium a day uh, in our patients with CF. Uh, Weight-bearing exercise is important. I tell my patients that really, you know, weight-bearing sends signals to your bone cells to build up bone. And so as much weight-bearing, even walking, is helpful uh, for your skeleton. And then also minimizing bone toxic medications when possible. And, you know, I'm an endocrinologist, we hate steroids, it's just the way it is. Um, But I also appreciate that lungs come before bone. And so, you know, when steroids are needed, they're needed and you should take them. Um, But I think it's important that, to kind of recognize that, you know, as soon as those steroids can be weaned or you know, stopped, or if we can come off the inhaled steroids, especially if they're high dose for, you know, maybe during the the summer months, you know, all of that would be, would be helpful um, for the skeleton. And I also want to point out that it's important to make sure that there aren't other things going on that might be affecting bone health uh, in our patients with CF. So we actually uh, published a case report a few years back because we, I diagnosed like Three or four people with CF who with also with celiac disease, and they had presented with you know bone density that was maybe worse than expected, or vitamin D deficiency that we just couldn't fix. And so I think it's important to keep on your radar that there can be more than just CF going on. And so also looking for primary hyperparathyroidism, making sure that diabetes is well managed, Um, and also I screen my patients with um, bone disease for hypogonadism. And really, this is because this is an area that you know, we can intervene and improve bone density um, and potentially help stop bone loss. So there's very limited data at looking at sex steroid replacement in CF alone. But we know from studies just in the non-CF population that testosterone replacement will improve bone density in men with hypogonadism. Uh, we know in women with hypogonadism that oral estrogen, like birth control pills, does not improve bone density in women who have anorexia or those with hypothalamic amenorrhea. But there's some early evidence that transdermal estrogen may actually be helpful. And then also, interestingly, there's um, some. there was one study that suggested that low-dose oral contraceptive pills, so pills that use a very low dose of estrogen, may be associated with lower bone density in women with CF. And this is consistent with what we've seen in adolescent girls, non-CF population, where low dose OCPs may actually not be great for the skeleton. Now, the CF guidelines recommend that we consider pharmacologic treatment in those patients who have low bone density with the MDZ scores below minus two, and particularly those who are fracturing, those who have accelerated bone loss of more than three to 5% per year, Uh, patients who are requiring prolonged oral corticoid use, and then those undergoing lung transplant. And really, bisphosphonates are the first-line pharmacologic intervention for bone disease in CF, And and it's the one that's been studied the most. So this slide is showing you the results of a Cochrane review that looked at clinical trials comparing bisphosphonates versus control in 237 adults with CF. And the data that I'm showing you here are the spine bone density changes with treatment. And you can see that um, with treatment, there's a roughly 6% increase uh, in bone density at the spine and there were similar findings at the hip. So we know that this fascinates improved bone density in adults. In addition, um, bisphosphamates may also be effective in improving bone density in children with CF. Um, and I wanted to show you this study. This was a randomized clinical trial that investigated oral elandrinate in 128 patients with CF ages five to 30. Um, but I want to point out that about 80% of these patients were under the age of 18. And so this really is a, a pediatric study. And um, so and as you can see here, the bone mineral apparent density increased by about 16% after bisphosphonate treatment for 12 months compared to only three months with placebo. And overall, the alendronate was very well tolerated in this study. And so really, I think um, there are very few studies looking at bisphosphonates in in children in any patient population. Um, And this is one of the few randomized clinical trials um, in, in pediatric bone health, so very interesting. And, you know, although bisphosphonates we know can help improve bone density, there are some downsides, particularly uh, affecting our our patients with CF that I wanted to mention. And the first one is that although bone density improves with treatment, uh, bisphosphonates have not been shown to reduce fractures in people with CF. And really, this is a numbers game. If you wanted to show true fracture risk reduction, these studies are going to need to have like thousands of patients, and so it's unlikely that we'll ever have studies big enough to be able to prove that. But it's reasonable in this situation to extrapolate from other patient populations that if we're seeing improvements in bone density in people with CF that are similar to other patient populations and then it has reduced fracture risk in those populations, it, it likely does the same in, in CF. Um, But there are also adverse effects that are important to point out. One is for the oral version of this phosphonate cyclondrinate. It can exacerbate gastroesophageal reflux disease, and it can cause a a pill esophagitis um, and esophageal issues that can be really limiting its use, um, particularly in in a lot of my adults um, with CF. Um, now, the IV version um, can be associated with what's called a acute phase reaction, which is this like uh, myalgias, arthralgias, bone pain that happens um, usually only after the first infusion, but it has been reported to be much more severe in people with CF compared to other patient populations, and I very rarely treat people with steroids, but this is one reason that I would actually, um, I tend to give people prednisone after their initial infusion to try to offset that. In addition, there is, um, as with all patient populations who are treated with dysphosphonates, a very small risk of atypical femur fracture, osteonecrosis of the jaw. In addition, the IV version has been associated with nephrotoxicity and then there are also concerns about treatment of women with future potential childbearing. So, we know that bisphosphonates stay in the skeleton for a very long time after treatment, um, and it has been shown to cross the placenta. And so, there are concerns that it might affect a fetus. You know, I will say that all the, of the available data in humans in other patient populations like osteogenesis and perfecta who get treated you know, their entire childhood, or in women with you um pregnancy-induced osteoporosis who require bisphosphonate treatment during pregnancy, it seems that these babies are okay, but we just need additional information and more, more studies. And then in terms of other medications used to treat osteoporosis, we just don't have a lot of data. Um, and so selective estrogen receptor modulators or SERMs. um are, can be effective in postmenopausal women. We, um, and there may be a future role as our population ages. There may be a potential role for this medication in our women with CF as they get older. Uh, denosumab is a monoclonal antibody against RANK ligand. So that's interesting because I mentioned earlier that CFTR dysfunction may affect, um, rank ligand and OPG. So it could be that denosumab may target some of the abnormalities caused by CFTR dysfunction, um, but there have been no studies looking at genosumab in, in CF. Um, in addition, teriparatide, abaloparatide, and romosozumab are our biggest guns. They are anabolic therapies that target bone formation and cause the biggest gains in bone density. There was a case report of four patients who were treated with teriparatide. And um, this led to improvements in bone density by 7 to 11%. Um, but one of those four patients actually had to stop treatment due to nausea, which is one of the potential side effects. In addition, there was just recently a case report of one patient, one adult with CF treated with romisosumab um, that showed 13 to 18% improvement in bone density after one year. So I think overall, um, this is an area that really requires further study to better understand the role for these medications in the management of CF bone disease. And then, of course, the biggest question on everybody's minds, what about CFTR modulators? So I told you that CFTR dysfunction may be contributing to bone disease. So it of course begs the question, you know, will improving CFTR function also improve bone? Um, And so uh, the answer is we're not sure, but it might. Uh, So this is a study looking at uh, mice with a Delta F508 mutation treated with a CFTR modulator. And they found that treatment led to improvement um, in their bone formation, bone mass, bone architecture compared to placebo. Um, And then in addition, in another study, administration of a CFTR modulator C18 um, to cultured human delta F five hundred eight osteoblast led to favorable changes in the, right, in the rank ligand OPG ratio, so potentially um, potentially improving CFGR function within the bone cells. What about humans? Um, so there as a retrospective study that was published a few years ago, looking at seven adults treated with Ivacaftor. Um, who all of these patients had the G551D mutation, and they found that compared to their DEXA scans before starting ivacaftor, here, that there was improvement in their lumbar spine Z-score um, by about 0.7 um, standard deviations after they started treatment, and that was statistically significant, along with improvements in pulmonary function and weight. Um, it's a little hard to interpret because sometimes waking alone can affect lumbar spine results, but um, suggestive that potential improvement. Um, and I'm really excited to tell you about this study that we just recently published uh, in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Um, and this is the first and only prospective study that investigated the effect of ibandfaster on bone. Um, and it was an observational multiple cohort study. So we recruited 26 children and adults with the G551D CFTR mutation, right around the time they were starting treatment with IvoCaptor after it was FDA approved. And then we measured bone outcomes, including DAXA and HRP QCT over a two year period. And then we compared these results to an age, race, and gender matched cohort of untreated patients with CF, so that was our CF control cohort, which were, you know, by definition had a a different um, CFTR genotype. And then we also recruited and followed a, a, a similarly matched cohort of healthy volunteers. Now, interestingly, we did not see any differences between the three cohorts in any DEXA outcomes and we did not observe any differences in the children, partly because it was such a, a wide range of ages and, and growth of the children, I, I suspect. Um, but we did see significant improvement in cortical bone microarchitecture um, in the patients treated with capture, that's here in the black. So they had significant increases in their cortical area, in cortical volume. They had a concurrent reduction in their trabecular area. And this was at both the radius and the hip. They also had in, uh, in increases in cortical porosity at both sites, um, which is really interesting because um, those changes of cortical porosity, similar changes were seen in studies looking at teriparatide, which is an anabolic therapy for osteoporosis. And so. Um, I think that these results are interesting. They do. The study was not designed to answer the question: Is this a direct effect of the modulators on the bone cells, versus could it be this is just you know from they're healthier people, nutrition better, pulmonary function? I will say we did adjust our results for um, BMI and FEV1, and that did not change the results, um, but I think that uh, it's hard to know for sure. Um, Ultimately, this really tells us that we just need more studies, particularly looking at highly effective modulator therapy and then also looking at younger and younger children as we start treatment. Lastly, uh, there are data that ivacaftor may have an impact on the development of bone disease in CF. Um, And so I wanted to show you these data. This is from uh, the 2014 US and UK CF registries. And they compared um, people treated with Ivocaptor in the blue to an untreated matched comparator cohort that was matched by age, uh, sex, and CFTR genotype severity. And they looked at a number of different outcomes over um, comparing the treated versus the comparator group, like, like diabetes prevalence and GI outcomes, um, but they also looked at bone and joint disease, and what they found is that um, the prevalence in the blue, as you can see here, in both cohorts, U.S. and U.K., the prevalence of bone and joint complications was lower in the patients with, that were treated with capture compared to the untreated matched comparator group. Now, I think it's important to point out that they did not account for possible differences at baseline in this study. Um, so it's hard to make any firm firm conclusions about the, the change in prevalence moving forward, but I think it's optimistic. And uh, again, I think we need few just more studies, particularly with um, the newest modulators, captor, tazicaptor, adicaptor. So, as I mentioned, you know, there's a lot we do know about CF bone disease, but there's so much that we don't know. And there's so much research that we need to do to really better understand the bone disease that we're seeing in our patients. And I I highlighted here some of the questions that I think are the the most compelling and the ones that I really hope we are able to answer, you know, in the next five to 10 years, maybe even sooner. Um, the first one being, you know, what exactly is CFTR doing in the skeleton? I would just love to see more work, better delineating um, the role and how and, and also how highly effective modulator highly effective modulator therapy are going to affect skeletal outcomes in our patients with CF. You know, our adults who, you know, may already have some degree of bone disease, but also our kids, you know, if we start really early, how is this gonna affect bone disease moving forward? Yeah, you know, I also think it's very important that we have studies looking at other currently available osteoporosis therapies to really understand which ones are safe and effective, which ones would be good options for treating our patients with CF moving forward. And then also I have I have noticed just in my own clinical practice that there seems to be a lot of variability in how bone disease is managed in the peritransplant period, for liver lung, liver for lung, kidney, um, in our patients with CF. And um, I think that we can do a lot of work to better um, understand the optimal approach um, for managing bone health, particularly in the younger population. And then lastly, I often ask myself, and and I need to do a better job myself, but um, how can we better screen our patients for bone disease? How can we better educate people on the things that we can do now that are gonna set us up for success You know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, um, how can we be better at that? So to summarize, um, I hope I have convinced you that CF-related bone disease is important, it's common, and uh, we need to do a better job of screening our patients so that we can help prevent this complication moving forward. We know that skeletal architecture is altered, not only in adults, but also in children and adolescents with CF, and DEXA is a great screening tool, but it may not be the the only way to understand what these these alterations are. Um, So the prevention of bone disease focuses on screening for bone density, aggressive management of nutrition, calcium, vitamin D, weight-bearing exercise, making sure there's nothing else going on that could be affecting bone health, minimizing bone toxic medications when we can. Uh, So bisphosphonates are the first-line treatment for CF-related bone disease, and we know they improve bone density in patients with CF, although fracture data are limited, and there's even less data in other medications used for osteoporosis osteoporosis treatment. And then lastly, there's new data suggesting that CFTR itself may be playing a role in CF related bone disease and the CFTR modulators may impact bone outcomes in our patients. And so I'm really excited to see future studies looking at just how modulators are gonna change the landscape for bone disease in CF. With that, I'd like to thank you so much uh, for your attention. And I think now would be a great time
0: to get questions. Hello and thank you. That was so important. And I'm just so grateful to you for sharing your time and formidable expertise on this subject. Um, And it is, it's like the more we know, the less we know. (laughs) That's part of the takeaway. So we have a lot of questions. So thank you. We're going to go through these quickly, Um, starting with this. With the issue um, with the uh, bisphosphonates, what is the dividing line when seeing all the potential risks that are involved, but then also then the risk of osteoporosis, what as a clinician is the dividing line to say, I think it's worth assuming those risks and prescribe this?
1: It's such a great question. And I think the decision to start bisphosphonates has to be made on an individual basis with the patient. The The big thing that always pushes me to recommend and strongly recommend treatment are fractures. So when I have a patient, particularly a vertebral fracture, that is the, if you have one vertebral fracture, your chance of getting another one without treatment is so high. I will absolutely strongly, and my patients know, I don't usually insist, but I will strongly recommend this bisplastomy treatment for, for vertebral fractures, rib fractures too hip fractures, any kind of fragility fracture where someone has a fracture and I'm like, that just, that mechanism, I'm worried about your skeleton. Um, that will will definitely push me over. Bone loss, particularly in a patient who already has low bone density is another reason that you know we would think really hard about starting treatment. Um, I do try to be aggressive about transplant. We, even in children, we know undergoing lung transplant in particular there's rapid bone loss, 30% fracture risk in that six to 12 months after transplant. And we know that we can offset that with treatment. Um, the harder part is finding a good time to treat either before or after that can be complicated, but we I, we know it's important. Um, so usually that's a time that we really have this discussion. Again, not every center does that. And so that's why it has to be kind of individualized. Um, and then the other time is high dose steroids. I mean, I do, I, I hate steroids, I can't help it. Um, but for, if someone has, I tend to go by the American College of Rheumatology guidelines. And if someone has very low bone density and is on more than 7.5 milligrams of prednisone for a long time, then I usually, I, I just, I really worry. And then I'll, I'll usually, but ultimately it really has to be on a case by case basis. That's a great question.
0: And there are, of course, a lot of questions about the DEXA scan. And you know, that you've pointed out they are not the gold standard by any stretch. So with that, um, with the the was the CT scan? No, the CT, yes, HRPT CT. So how should should people be pushing at their centers to have a CT scan? And is it you know cost prohibitive for people? It, what is the question that people wouldn't be doing this as standard protocol?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The problem is, is that, um, so HRPQCT right now is only a research tool. I do think it will become a clinical tool, but we're not there yet. So the images that I showed you, there's not that many of those scanners in the country, unfortunately, yet. Um, And then PQCT also, there's just, there's not, they're not widely available. It's a higher radiation dose. And the hard part is that um, we don't have like the ability to predict fracture risk necessarily with those tools, and so DEXA, even though it's not perfect, it is right now kind of what we're left with, Um, and so, but I I also think it's really important to recognize that it's not, we're not looking at the DEXA in isolation. We have to look at the DEXA results, and we have to look at the patient whose results it is, and look at their risk factors, and look at, you know, the entire picture to make those decisions, and DEXA is an important piece but it's just one of the pieces that, that we look at.
0: Let's see. Uh, can bone disease be in the genes? For example, if my dad had problems with some of the spinal discs, can am I at a higher risk?
1: I love that question. And so the answer is most likely yes. That that could be. Um, we know in other osteoporosis, you just general populations, So like like postmenopausal women, you know, in men in general, that that there's a very strong genetic background to fracture risk and osteoporosis. And so, so yes, I think that that would be a reason to make sure that you are up to date on your DEXA screening for sure. And doing all of those wonderful things to optimize your bone health that we talked about.
0: Well, and it was interesting about seeing the the statistic you had about men and fractures, because I, I think we hear a lot about women, especially post women, but women with CF in particular with osteoporosis and such, but not much about the men.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's because most, I think most osteoporosis in general literature has always been in postmenopausal women because that's the population that has the highest risk and the largest number of fractures. But I think in CF, it's that gender bias is not necessarily the same.
0: And then we, and men are affected too. Is there a genetic component to higher vitamin D deficiency? My family is mostly Western European. We don't play, we don't play well with the sun. <laughs> <laughs> so there probably is, and certainly too,
1: with like vitamin D binding protein, it, it's it can get very complicated. Um, I do think you know particularly, you know, I, I live in Boston and uh, so we're all vitamin D deficient up here in the Northeast, um, except in like maybe August, we're all okay. So that that definitely plays a big a big role. Um, and so I, I would just say that being very aggressive about vitamin D supplementation and it, it really should be D3, that does seem to be better absorbed. Um, for uh, people with CFs, so just making sure. And, it, it, and it's a lot, like sometimes, you know, 10,000 every day, you know, my non-CF colleagues see my patients and they're like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? But that's what it takes, you know, and you, it, making sure that that vitamin D level is, is at least above 30. Uh,
0: let's see, do meds like Omeprazole affect bones and osteoporosis?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Omeprozol, so the proton pump inhibitors in osteoporosis. It's it's still an active area of research in the entire you know non CF population. Um, there likely is a small effect. We don't know exactly why. Part of it could be that you know PPIs affect uh, calcium absorption, and it does when you're on a PPI. Calcium carbonate supplements are not well absorbed. They need acid to be absorbed. And so, um, on a PPI, if you need a calcium supplement, really you should be using calcium citrate, um, which is better absorbed. And so, you know, there's there could very well be a role for PPI in affecting, you know, calcium metabolism. Maybe even apart from that, what I typically tell my patients though is that a lot of times people who are on PPIs really need them. And you shouldn't stop it just for the bones if it's helping you, because we don't want you to stop it and then get bad symptoms and lose weight. That would be much, much worse. And so if you need it, you should take it and just also make sure you're getting enough calcium.
0: Great, great question, great response. Do you believe that M M-C-H-A is the best calcium in terms of both absorp- absorption and efficacy. Also, what about vitamin C and magnesium? Any studies to suggest correlation at this time? That's a great question. So, so
1: calcium, in terms of calcium, as long as you're not on any kind of you know acid, gastric acid blockades or H2 blockers or PPIs, it really likely does not make a big difference about the calcium carbonate versus, you know, which exact type you're using. Um, Calcium carbonate pills tend to be a little bit more concentrated, so you get more calcium for, because they're all horse pills. And so, um, and then if you are on any kind of acid blockade, then really you should stick with calcium citrate. Um, You know, the role for, so for vitamin C, you can see low bone density with vitamin C deficiency. You know, it's kind of the whole scurvy type picture. Um, But there's really not a lot of data that super physiologic vitamin C necessarily helps you more. So we don't want you to be deficient. Um, Too much is probably not gonna, it's not gonna hurt, but it's unlikely to help you that much. Magnesium, that's also important. Um, Magnesium, if you're magnesium deficient, it can affect how parathyroid hormone is able to act. Um, both, you know, systemically and, and with calcium, it affects your absorption. So you do want to be magnesium replete too. Again, you don't want to, you, you can overdo the magnesium. It can cause really bad diarrhea if you have too much. Like You, you don't need to overdo it. You just need to be replete.
0: Okay, we're right up at the the close of the session, but can you hang with us and people for we have like 3 minutes more and we can speed speed ask and speed answer. <laughs> <laughs> what about boniva? Boniva boniva for oral uh, osteopenia meds. Yes, boniva is a bandronate, which is a it's very
1: similar to alendronate. They all see, you know, there's more data in alendronate. That's the generic and that's the one that most insurance will will cover. Um, but the abandronate likely, likely all of the bisphosphonates will
0: act similarly. We use them really interchangeably. Um, Are there any studies about arthritis in CF? My 32-year-old is normal per last year's DEXA scan, but has very painful arthritis. So
1: I I wish I did. I have several patients who have very severe, like and and it's been called like CF arthropathy, and I don't it, I don't have a great understanding. I think you know usually that's managed by rheumatologists. Um, I don't manage that personally, but I will say a lot of my patients I see patients with arthropathy because they require treatment with steroids, and then they have bone loss and and so forth. So um, so yeah, I do think that seeing a rheumatologist early, like it sounds like your, your daughter is young, seeing a rheumatologist is going to be really important.
0: Um, I think she's in her 30s. but
1: Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. But 30s um, is
0: young too. That's young too. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And then last question, Trikafta, seeing those wonderful results for um, Kalydeco, how soon until we can start seeing studies that are uh, looking at bone health with Trikafta?
1: I know. I can't wait. So I do know that the PROMISE study um, is looking at outcomes, you know, before and after. I think they—I was just seeing like thirty-month um, study visits, looking at. You know, they look at Dexa as part of their outcome. I don't know when the results are coming out, but I can't wait until they do. And I suspect it would—it'll be relatively soon. So yeah, I agree. It's going to be really interesting to see that.
0: Dr. Putman, we are so grateful to you for sharing your time and your expertise. This was just a fascinating presentation and I know this will lead to more questions. I I foresee touching base with you to have a little podcast to follow up on more of these questions. It's such an important issue. Thank you for bringing attention to it.